what's the key? What is the magic to get ridding, rid of the list and getting a real strategy policy instead? And following people like Rummel, I think the magic is what's in the way. What I call it, what's the bottleneck to your aspiration? If your aspiration is short-term growth, what's the bottleneck to that? If your aspiration is a tremendous one like DuPont, how can we reinvent a company after 200 years for the third time? What's the bottleneck to that? And that it is finding the bottleneck, what's in the way, and then talking about what's a policy that can bust that bottleneck. This can immediately reduce the list and try to really zero in on the few things that really matter. Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, the podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit smestrategy.net. And now, your host, Anthony Taylor. Hey there, folks. Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Today, my guest is Peter Campo, and he's the author of The Emergent Approach to Strategy, Adaptive Design, and Execution. I spent 25 years in the same organization, and I'm so excited to share the adaptive learning from his work. But Peter, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Looking forward to having a chat and learn more about your work and your book. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I was trying to be a little coy with it, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience in the organization that you work with, a little bit more about you personally, and we'll get into the chat? Yeah. Well, I spent 25 years at EI DuPont here in uh, Wilmington and a few locations, and now a much smaller company that was at when I joined and has gone in kind of a breakup, but it is the parts that have been broken up and what it was when I first joined was one of the great companies of the 20th century. And its heyday was really in the earlier part of the century when they invented just so many products that became household names, nylon and, and you know, Freon and uh, Stainmaster and also many commercial things, uh, Kevlar and uh, Tyvek and so, so forth. It was a great, great company. And its parts still are, even though it's been broken up. I joined it as a chemical engineer scientist. And I experienced quite a a wide range of positions in the company, had leadership positions in operations and uh, supply chain and marketing product. I worked in New Ventures as the director of DuPont Ventures for a short time. And then I worked in old corporate, old uh, commodity businesses. So I really had a good view. I talk about it having worked in the corporate trenches for 25 years. And over that time, I saw a lot of ways that strategy was thought about. I saw a lot of ways that innovation was thought about. Of course, we had an army of consultants. All the big names were coming through year after year. And I saw what they were saying. And I felt compelled to think about things a little differently and bring a new clarity, as I say, to strategy and implementation, strategy design and implementation. I'll add one other thing. I actually come from a musical background and my family was all musicians in New York. And that gave me a background that was important too, though, because I think one of the things we really have to do is connect 
strategy methods to how creativity occurs and how innovation really occurs. And it doesn't occur by stepwise recipes. It's ugly and it's messy. And only in hindsight are we able to take histories and say, well, they must have known what they were doing all the way. Or a few cases you can find people that got lucky enough to know it all the way. So I've tried to integrate this whole angle of how creativity occurs in an adaptive way. And that's slowly all of these experiences came together and I quit to write full time and get a, a book out that tried to capture all of these issues that I had experienced. That's awesome. I'm interested in reading the book truly. I've got a shelf of 40, 60 years of management science. And I find it so just what I think is really, really cool about your experience is when you look at, call it innovation in the 21st century, whatever the heck century we're in right now, you're looking at technology leveraging and you're building technology on top of additional technology and you have AI morphing with other modules of AI to support that. Well, it's so cool from the company that you worked in and the background in chemical engineering. You're like, hey, let's mix these things together and make a new compound. Like the amount of risk tolerance, the amount of creativity and innovation to create a compound, like a physical thing that never existed. We're not talking like a beverage or food. You're literally talking about industrial applications and the trillions of dollars, but then also getting a whole line of consumers to use it. That in itself, the product launch needed to implement any launch successfully. The depth and breadth of DuPont as an organization, and as you mentioned, you've got the brightest minds in the world, consultants will say, there's air quotes for those of you following along at home. You have your internal methodologies, you have internal engineers, and the engineers are really the smart guys. Then you have consultants coming in. And so just the ability to be able to morph, adapt, grow, and change so quickly, but having so many minds of people working on a way to make it happen, I could only imagine how interesting that would be. And just as a practitioner, I'm in my way every day and I'm evolving my models from one to two to three and I'm using those books. But for you guys, you guys were on the front line of it and I can only imagine what that was like. So getting into a question, Peter, what was it like in the 25 years in that organization and the kind of arcs of innovation of the ideas and how it's evolved and uh, take us as, as deep into the trenches as you'd like to go. Looking back, the really famous inventions of the company occurred before I got there. And the company was almost 200 years old when I got there. And they had started the first 200 years was with explosives. And then they parlayed that explosive chemistry had cellulose chemistry, which was from dynamite. And they said, well, let's start looking at other chemistries. And Slowly but surely, they branched out into all kinds of chemically related technologies and platforms, including inventing nylon along the way and the whole polymer world, along with some other great companies in Europe and Asia. What was really interesting, I think, about strategy and DuPont for me was they, when I joined, the question was, how are we going to do it again? How are we going to reinvent this company for a third time? Hey, look, a company that reinvents itself once is brilliant and has survived for 200 years. But to be able to do it a third time, a really great challenge. And 
What I think they were up against is something that so many companies are up against. It's questions like how long to hang in there with legacy products, how long to hang in there with old platforms that got you there in the first place. I mean, I know I wasn't there, but I know there was times people would say, no, we're going to keep investing in nylon because that's what got us there. Yet, maybe the company was 10 years too late in moving out of nylon and saying, this is now a commodity. We can't afford to be the producers of this anymore. It's time to move on. I think that was something that DuPont and all maturing companies really had to face and was very difficult. And frankly, maybe didn't face it as hard as they could have. And that was part of the reason why the corporation had to be broken up a little bit. I mean, there's also the problem of how fast you can change. They did a really brilliant thing. They said, look, we had a hundred years of explosives. We had a hundred years of chemistry and materials. What's the future? It's biology. That's where the new opportunity is. And I think it was a brilliant idea to do that. The question came down to how fast could you move? How fast could you get out of the old stuff and still justify corporate overhead of a huge R&D division and all the overhead of a, of a C-suite and, and all the various parts that came with running a global company of that size? That's where I think I really saw something and where you needed brutally harsh strategy to do that. And I just wonder, your podcast speaks to small businesses, medium-sized businesses. How many businesses are feeling that maturity coming on and having to make some very, very tough decisions and that the innovation really requires a very harsh strategy on how to take those choices? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's it's so interesting to hear like the hundred year perspective, looking at your, you know, tenure from 1988 to 2013, like just the natural industry. It's not the right word, but macroeconomic changes that have happened. I find it so interesting running a business now, the speed of change. I was meeting with somebody who's doing social media and he said, Hey, every five years, I need to reinvent myself. And that is a very, very niche technology. But as you look at an organization like DuPont and how it's grown and evolved, you have such legacy. And the question I was wondering in my head that I'd love to pose to you is what were the biggest challenges in accepting the change, putting the strategy in place and moving it forward? Was it size? Was it scope? Was it resistance? Was it communication? Was it integration? Was it launching business lines? And then to your point now around SMEs in this day and age is their ability to be nimble, to be adaptive with their strategy is one of the musts. And so it's interesting to see an organization that was big and now it's broken up to presumably be more nimble, adaptive focused. And then how does an organization, those big behemoths, the you know trillion dollar market cap companies, what they're doing. So it's a very interesting dichotomy but what was your experience? What were some of the challenges that you saw or the chief challenge in driving strategy, adaptive strategy forward? I think DuPont's a really good case for that question in the sense that DuPont was nothing like, for example, Kodak, right? Who was also had their heyday versus the same time that DuPont had its heyday. Uh, Kodak got slammed by one thing, really, and they didn't react quick enough 
apparently the story is they had the first digital camera and yet they let others take it away. It wasn't like that at all. DuPont was a well-run company, professionally run company, successful. I remember one year that we had trouble with stock price and there was complaints from the analysts and so forth. I remember the CEO at the time said, you know, we made $3 billion this quarter, you know, or whatever it was year. I guess it was for the year. What I think was really interesting and what can really be learned from it is that these things sneak up on you. They sneak up on you and it's very, very hard to know when it's time to pull the trigger, when it's time to let go of old product lines and sell them, and when it's time to put big money into new things. It's really, really hard. But what I think not only did du was DuPont a little slow in doing it, I think that we didn't get enough out of the old businesses to finance the new. We weren't rigorous enough about making money in the old businesses and getting the absolute most we could out of them. And that wasn't just too many people, which we did have, and that was borne out as they started to break the company up into parts. Many people lost their jobs, unfortunately. I think that as I watched this, we didn't have enough efficiency and enough success in the existing old businesses to properly finance the new businesses. And in terms of, you asked a question about resistance. I don't know that it was actually resistance. I think it may have been more along the lines as it wasn't clear what to do. There wasn't great clarity. And then I'll add the last one, which was the toughest of all, having to achieve quarterly results that keeps the stock price going. And frankly, you could make a great five, 10 year vision and plan. And you know it, you even might think it's right. We had high power consultants come in here and tell us it's right. But when that quarter comes, it can change things and it can change focus. And that was another tough thing. And I think that was very related to not getting enough out of the existing businesses. I see it with organizations, the public organizations. It's like your stakeholders, you're like so accountable to your stakeholders. And it's a, okay, say it's above my pay grade. I'm not a public CEO and I can't sit here and say, well, you need to engage your stakeholders so that they know that your innovation runway is four, year, four years round because that's not what motivates and drives them. I was working with a public company recently and we did some strategic planning and they were looking for the single points of failure and the signposts. So to your point is like, hey, how do we react quickly enough is what are those indicators and you had mentioned the, the I call it slow divestiture or the plan. What is the, maybe not timeline, but hey, as we innovate with these new products, do we have a plan to sunset? Are we going to sell? Are we going to just squeeze as much margin as possible? Are we going to sell some of the, the old factories? So was that the gap that you said one of is because there was no clear I think plan? That was one gap. And I think it was twofold. And we've touched on it is being too slow to recognize when it's time to let go of things. And the other is too slow to recognize what it takes to have the level of efficiency you need, a strategy of efficiency that integrates. This was another problem that I'll raise. And in fact, this is one that I focus very, very much in the book, the whole idea of integration, telling the sales and marketing people, oh, your job is to sell and to get new business, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and telling the operations people, your job is to reduce cost. Well, the problem with that 
is that if you don't consider what we're selling to customers, what product lines we're going to have, and marketing and sales can just get any product they want, and I'm not saying it was ever like that, but if marketing sales are free to pick what they need, whatever they want, without consideration for cost, how does operations reduce cost? It needs to be a truly integrated approach. And I think that was a place where we didn't have a truly integrated strategy. So that was another aggravating factor in getting the most out of businesses and getting the most out of legacy businesses. I'm going to answer one more. In 2002, we had our 200th anniversary as a company. And there was a new launch of a new strategy, a new CEO. And it was all about moving to a more modern knowledge base ability instead of being so focused on manufacturing assets and so forth. More what knowledge is incorporated that's unique into our products. I think it was actually a very good strategy. And he got some good help from, from McKinsey and others. I think it was a really good strategy, but the effort to make that change and then drive it down into the organization and talk about what it means for day-to-day -day activity, what it means for everybody's job, that's a different task. It's not enough to have a good idea like that, but to drive that strategy throughout the company with everybody having a strategy of their own that is consistent with it and congruent with it, that's where we fell down. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we talk about is we call it the multiple destination trap. If everybody's moving to a different destination, we're working on different things. And so we work on the alignment of that one destination, which is sounds like that's what you had. But then what the breakdown was the cascading, the integration, the alignment top down, bottom up and making sure that everybody had, you know, knew what they need to do, knew what it was. And one of the things I tell my clients is there's two or three days of planning if you're doing an offsite, in this case, months and months and months of strategizing. But don't forget the 1,100, 1,500 days of implementation. It's the amount of communication. It's the amount of engagement. So let me ask you, we talk about the book. As you look at writing this book, the lessons learned over 25 years in multiple positions, new clarity for strategy, theory, and practice, an emergent approach to strategy, adaptive design, and execution. Talk to our listeners a little bit about what are the two or three key lessons that you'd like them to be able to take and implement? Of course, one of those being go out and buy the book, but how can they be better at creating adaptive strategy? I think I'll even take it down to one. I'll even take it like if someone asks me, and this is true for a small business or a large company, doesn't matter. I'm going to really stress this one. And it's that the vast majority of strategies I've ever seen, strategic plans, from the military, government, education, NGOs, small businesses, large businesses, what they consist of is fairly high-minded vision and mission and big abstract goals, and then long, long, long lists of sub-goals and plans and metrics and priorities and pillars and so forth and so on. And I would say that the first thing any we can do is take away the lists and ask the question. And I'm not the only one to talk about the problem with lists. You've heard that before. 
a list of goals is not a strategy. You got to make hard choices. Porter, you can't serve everybody. You can't be everything to everybody, so forth. But what's the key? What is the magic to get ridding, rid of the list and getting a real strategy policy instead? And following people like Rummel, I think the magic is what's in the way. What I call it, what's the bottleneck to your aspiration? If your aspiration is short-term growth, what's the bottleneck to that? If your aspiration is a tremendous one like DuPont, how can we reinvent a company after 200 years for the third time? What's the bottleneck to that? And that it is finding the bottleneck, what's in the way, and then talking about what's a policy that can bust that bottleneck. This can immediately reduce the list and try to really zero in on the few things that really matter. And connected to what you were talking before, like for DuPont here, they're trying to do this immense change. What was really in the way? What are we really fighting here? Is it the organization doesn't want to buy it? Is it too complicated? Is it that what we're proposing can't be done in the time that we're proposing it? Is it we don't have the right people or too many people? What was in the way and what are we going to do about that? I think the problem with lists, it's so debilitating, these lists. There's no pain in them. And a real strategy has to have pain. A real strategy has trade-offs, right? And I used to look at these lists and I look at them from other people now. And what happens is everybody says, look, who could argue? It's on the list. We're doing everything needed to make this company reinvented. We're doing everything we need to improve and meet our goals. But of course, if everything matters, nothing matters. I also used to say what happens is it's like everybody in the room gets their bullet point and then they can go home and go back to what they were doing before as long as they got their one bullet point. And no one asks, are all these bullet points consistent with each other? So this is my number one thing. And I've built all kinds of machinery, techniques, simple techniques that you can use to move from a bunch of lists as a strategy to a strategy that may have lists for implementation, but zeroes in on the bottleneck and on the policy you need to bust that bottleneck. Awesome. It's one of the things that I appreciate about people who grow up with an engineering background because it's there's a problem solving framework. Everything is not the problem. It's what is the root cause of the problem. And what I was taking away from what you were sharing is when you look at adaptive, like you are adapting. So there's like the proactive, there's the reactive, and then there's the adaptive. And what most people are doing, some are trying to be proactive, some are trying to be reactive, but building a good adaptive strategy has you really focus on, hey, what are those key things and how do we roll with it? We don't do five-year plans anymore, again, by nature of the clients that we work with, because it's going to change so quickly. And and your document is not going to adapt faster than you are. So we'd rather say, here, what are those key wins? What do we need to, what are we trying to solve for? And what are we going to work on? So uh, vindicated somewhat as a facilitator that we're doing the right thing as you, which is great. But I just think it's so critical. Um, And one of the other takeaways I have from you, Peter, is just getting everybody on the same page, you know, to be able to do that and make sure that everything's clear. Uh, Something you wanted to add there before we finish up? Two quickies. One is, it's funny you said that about engineers, because I was on a panel and a woman on the panel made fun of me. Oh, yeah, I can see the engineering coming through in your book. And I was like, 
thank you. What a compliment. You know, <laughs> fantastic. But the other is, I think getting everybody on the same page in a way that's not trivial, in a way that you're not just repeating the slogans and the way that you're not just looking at a 55-page PowerPoint deck. This takes real effort, and it's a technical effort, not just a personal effort. It's both. People have to understand and internalize what's really going on to do this. And I think I spend a whole lot of time in trying to give techniques that 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 can happen with. I don't know that there's a problem with a five-year vision or a five-year goal. I think the problem comes in when you think you're done after you've done that and listed a bunch of things. You have to translate that into what's in the way of hitting that five-year goal and really asking yourself, are you sure that that five-year goal is it? Or should we just let it go and let's focus on a year? That's a good discussion. But even if a five-year or even a 10-year goal is meaningful, it's only the starting point. You have to ask, what's in the way now? And how are we going to give real-time guidance to the organization on what to do now? That's a different trick. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think it's when you put a long-term goal and you're done. And now we'll go back to what we were doing before. Absolutely. I think, yeah, it's more the the set it and forget it nature that people think that strategy is not a document, nor is it a vision. And what I was going to share earlier is from the past leadership of DuPont at any point, but to have the foresight of a hundred years is extremely helpful because it's like, hey, that's the line in the sand. That's where we want to go. And contextually, it was relevant. And also just making sure say, hey, what does that really mean? And, and how do you sustain it? Because a great organization, and that's why I was so excited to speak, you know, DuPont as an organization. It's a great organization and, and historically has made significant improvements to like society. Uh, like, I don't think we even think about it when you're like, hey, I'm using like a frying pan, but there's something in there that somebody made. No, how they did that year after year and are still doing it. These businesses, some of them are 70, 80 years old and still are great businesses. I mean, it's a testament to kind of the genius of some of these people. Absolutely. And so it's like, it's not gone. So rather like what I'd have our, our listeners, you, the listener look at is saying, Hey, what are those ingredients that really make an organization long last that can make your organization, if you so choose, be one of significant impact, long lasting impact, and that can make big things. And to do that, again, Peter's kind of main premise is make your strategy adaptive. Look at what's going to get in the way so that you can focus on what you really need to focus on in order to move you forward. Just before we finish, Peter, I want to give a shout out to our partner, Affinity Group. When Peter and I jumped on the call, he said, hey, are you, I thought you were Canadian. You don't sound Canadian. And I'll say, well, there's a lot of benefits to sounding Canadian, but Affinity Group, which is a recruiting staffing agency, is in Canada. And one of the benefits of hiring talent in Canada is that you pay Canadian prices. So if you're looking to bring on some great people onto your team, visit affinity-group.ca slash SME. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, you can partner with them. They're awesome people. Tell them we sent you. But Peter, thank you so much for being here, for sharing what you shared. Uh, where can people pick up your book? Where can they learn more about the work that you're doing now in 2023? It's easy. Amazon.com, of course. EmergentApproach.com is my website. Emergent Approach Strategy of the book on Amazon.com. A lot of information there. And you can check me out on LinkedIn, of course, Peter Campo, and get all the information you need. 
Awesome. I appreciate that, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a personal pleasure. I really, it was a lot to learn. And yeah, I had a blast. So thanks for making the time today. It's been fun. Thanks. Folks, uh, my guest today, Peter Campo, one of the things I'm taking away from today, A, that I like cheating and you get years and years of consultant experience all baked into one, but really seeing what is needed to make a special organization, to make special products, to really adapt and have an organization thrive through multiple decades of change. And then how can you borrow from all of that learning, incorporate what works for you inside your strategic approach and recognize that strategy is certainly not a list. It is an intention of where you want to go, but a consistent pursuit of doing the right things in the right order to solve the right problems. And I think if you do that, you will build a resilient organization, then you'll emerge out of the next piece of whatever uh, society brings to us. Who knows what's next? But thank you again, Peter. It's been a pleasure. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Appreciate you for watching and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a review. We appreciate you listening and following along, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And as Anthony says, until next time.